is an amazing thing. We, we all know the name Congo. Uh, we've heard of civil wars and tribal wars and problems there, but we really don't know it until we meet a man like Didier, a man that is there, born and raised. He has seen the most difficult, the most sobering things. He lives among the world's most greatest poverty. And yet he is a man full of joy and compassion and mercy. And he has trained pastors and taken care of orphans and, and, and now trying to medically care for those where there's no medical care at all. And so, Lord, we pray for this ministry that you would provide for them. Thank you for his sweet wife, Annie, who is such a loving woman who takes in so many children that are not her own and oversees their care. And uh, we, we just praise you for this family. Lord, we thank you for the children as they all serve. And together, this family is a, a great ministry in a very difficult place. We do pray, Lord, as we work with the now uh, newly formed Compassion for Congo board, that you would help us, you would give us wisdom. And Lord, you would help these donors to be able to figure out how to switch over and send their money here so we can send that on to Didier, 100% of it, all going there, Lord. I pray you would help us and protect this ministry, Lord. Thank you that we get to be involved in not only in the Congo, but in many other places around the world. Lord, thank you for our time in the Word today. What a joy singing and praising you. And now we turn to your all-sufficient Word to strengthen our souls, to guide and direct us in this life as we run this race to the end. And then someday we step into your presence for all of eternity. So, Lord, strengthen us for that purpose this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my goal and intent is to finish 1 Corinthians 15, 58 this morning. Um, I don't think it's hard for you, if you've been a believer very long, to look at this verse and realize why I just kind of sat down in it. Um, what a verse. Let me just read it again and just think about this. Pastor Brian just read it, but listen to it again. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not sometimes, not every once in a while, but always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, I want to focus it on the last little phrase. I've been dissecting this passage all the way through this fourth, down to this fourth week on this verse. Is this little phrase, it's not in vain in the Lord. Not in vain in the Lord. Well, probably that word is strongest in the Old Testament by King Solomon, right? He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, inspired by the Spirit of God, probably a book towards the end of his life. As he began to say, as he ends the book, vanities of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. As he looked at life underneath the sun, he would call it, life in this fallen world, he saw most of what man does, including himself, as just pure vanity. It was not profitable for the things of God. But as he concludes that, after saying that, verse 13, chapter 12, right at the end, he says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that's his conclusion after writing and working through so many situations and things in life and creation and how sin has affected everything uh, in this life. This was his conclusion. Fear God. Obey Him. Judgment's coming. 
That's, that's how he concludes that. And, and I think Paul's doing the same thing. I think he has the same concern in somebody, some many ways here. He's concerned about the church in Corinth. And, and at the end of life, he wants them and he wants himself, when everything's done, not to be, not to be done in vain, but to the Lord. How much, how much that the church has done would be in vain when we get there? That's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 3 tells there's be a lot of wood, hay, and stubble going up in smoke. And so Paul doesn't want that. And so he uses this phrase, not in vain, um, but in the Lord. Uh, this word vain, the, uh, kenos, is a, a word used quite often. But it, it means uh, without contempt. Or means something of emptiness. It literally carries the idea of a person who comes to something where he's supposed to bring something, but comes empty-handed. You came to the potluck, and you didn't bring anything. <laughs> you came to give to the Lord, and everybody else gave, but you gave nothing. You came empty-handed. This is not talking about salvation. That's the way we come to God, salvation, empty-handed. But here is the idea of vanity. It's without purpose is the idea. Notice he drops that little word, adverb, and they're not. So this is the negative aspect of it. Paul doesn't want these Christian believers to, to be with doubt. He wants them to know what they did without a shadow of doubt, that their toil and their labor was not empty-handed. And why is he doing it? Is this legalism? Is this, hey, you got to do more? Is that what that is? Or does Paul now understand the beauty of a life that worships God and does not come once he's filled our lives with his truth, does, no, does not any longer come empty-handed to God? He gives us gifts. He gives us all that we need to serve the Lord. Unfortunately, Paul has been exposing these factions throughout this letter and, and these false views that really attribute it to their empty-handedness. They were so caught up in themselves, their own situations, their own lives, their own problems, their own views. And in the end, they were very empty-handed when they came to God. In fact, they could not even give financially to the, to the Lord like the other poor churches did. But Paul's a shepherd, isn't he? He, see, Paul wants them not to be purposeless. He wants them to be people who are pleasing to the Lord. And that's, that's the goal of a shepherd. The, the shepherd wants them to, to flourish, right? And Paul is a shepherd. He desires his flock to be spiritually prosperous and, and abounding in the work of the Lord. He wants all the churches that he deals with uh, not to waste their time, not to be doing things in vain, but to do the work of the Lord. He doesn't want them powerless. Uh, another term that we get from kenos in the Greek is, is powerless. You have nothing. You've done nothing to come alongside what God is doing. He doesn't want them to have that. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he said, and working together with him, Christ, we also urge you not to receive, now listen to this, receive, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Wow. Man, that's pretty scary. You heard the gospel. You realize that it, was, it, it is the truth and the finished work of Jesus Christ that frees you from eternal damnation, frees you from what we deserve as sinners, and yet you, did no, you had no response to it. Oh, that's great. Good. I don't have to go to hell. Great. That's a good fire insurance. 
Now I'm going to go live my life for myself. See, Paul's urging this church not to take the grace of God and, and just abandon that for the sake of eternity. I'm just going to be fine there. I don't have to worry about this life. The grace of God motivates everything we do. It has to. What's your motivation to be here this morning? Well, that's what we do in the South. <laughs> oh, heavens. Is the grace of God the reason you're here this morning? Is the grace of God the reason you read your Bible, you, you repent of sin quickly to be right with God? You care for souls around you. I mean, everything that we do is motivated by the grace of God. And he says, he warns them, don't let the grace of God be done in vain to you. Let it return with great joy. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This is where I get in trouble because my introductions get so deep. Um, but they're fun, right? I mean, I, I, I love learning here. Look at chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, because Corinth isn't the only church he's challenging. He challenges a lot of churches to get their act together, to live according to the grace of God, even though it's difficult in this life. I love this little passage here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. How's this for a Sunday morning? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. How does that start? How was your morning? Any grumbling and disputing in your house? How about your week? Paul says, do the, all things without grumbling and complaining. We know what, what, how judgment was brought on the nation of Israel because of their grumbling. Look at verse 15. Here's the reason why. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach. What an amazing phrase. We're going to see that term in another context here in a minute. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Stop grumbling because God's made you blameless and, and innocent. Do you see yourself as innocent? That's really hard, isn't it? How many of us sinned this week? You should all raise your hand. I'll just give you a little help. I'll give you an answer to the question. I'll tell you, there's times we don't feel very innocent, do we? let alone blameless. And yet, that's how perfect the finished work of Christ is, is that we stand blameless and innocent in the presence of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's astounding, isn't it? I mean, that's the gospel. That's who we are. And, and, and look, that's why we are children now above reproach. We can be, you have everything you need. The Bible's telling us we have everything we need to be above reproach in in not only the church, but in this perverse generation we live in. And you go, wow, this was, you know, 2,000 years ago. Rome's ruling, immorality's abandoned, uh, abundant. The church is, is starting to see some persecution. All of that's happening. Oh, well, kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? See, we can be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among, and I love this phrase, whom you appear as lights in the world. Is Riverbend Church a bright, shining light? And if it isn't, we've got to find where we are dull and fix it. We have to. We are God's flashlight here. <laughs> we are God's torch here. And so we have to challenge ourselves to find these areas, each of us personally, um, corporately, where these things, where our light has been dimmed by whatever. And we have to fix that. Here's how we do it, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. 
Go back to the text. Go back to the scriptures. Remind yourself what the Bible says. This is how God wants us to live. This is what's honoring to him and pleasing to him. So that in the day of Christ, now this is a great thing, isn't it? In the day of Christ, when he returns to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth, when that day comes, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. I mean, there's a sense that Paul says when Christ returns, he's going to be there going, those are my people that you gave me to care for. Look at them, Lord. You saved them, and, and they're coming in, and they ran that race, and they ran it well. I, I think Paul's there cheering on the church as they come into glory. Maybe he's doing that to this day. When the church comes in, these men and women who have gone before us cheer on that they did not run in vain. They did not toil in vain. Their lives were worth something for the glory of God. Now, Paul didn't want them to fail. Last week, we looked at 1 Thessalonians. We looked at chapter 1, chapter 3. That was a church, a particular church that we could see that was striving, abounding in the work of the Lord. And, in, and we remember in chapter 3, verse 5, he said, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. He, he realizes that there is always things going after our labor for Christ. It starts within our own hearts, right? Our own hearts can be desperately wicked, and who can know them at times? There's the temper, the evil one. Satan hates the things of Christ. He hates the church of Christ. He hates the word of God. He hates saints loving one another. He hates all of those things. And so those are constant attacks that he brings. So Paul says, I want to make sure. We sent Timothy because we want to make sure that you were striving and our labor was not in vain. This is where pastors and church members and people who love the word and are willing to disciple others, the effects of that come in. You pour into, you pour everything you have into someone else. You give them everything you have, everything you've learned. As many times I've studied and I've given you everything I have and I'm going to go back to study some more so I can come back the next time and give it more, give it more to you. Have you poured everything out? An illustration I was thinking about this week that you might connect with, you might not, but I think you can understand it at some level. I managed a lot of cattle for a lot of years, and in the fall we would gather about October 1st and start bringing cattle off the range and bringing them back. And when I knew things were really well, when we did a good job out there, the mama cows were thin and the calves were fat. Often people would say, man, your mama cows look really thin. I said, that's good. They poured everything they have into that calf because that's where the money is. It's the calves that go to the sale. And then we refeed those mama cows and restore them through the winter and get them ready to, break, to give a calf the next spring and go out and do it all again. But sometimes those cows come home just kind of gaunt. They gave everything. That calf sucked them down. That's what we do. We give everything we have. I was reading a letter from Anilo that he sent me this week, and I want you to hear it. I just took a portion out of it. He read it to, wrote it to several of his pastors. This is Nilo speaking, quote, I'm giving it right out of the email. I have spent the whole day yesterday with my two sons, planning to do the same with the other two, maybe before the end of this week or next. I was very candid to them 
about my readiness to go home. My body is weakening by the passing days. Last Sunday as I preached, I stopped short the sermon for I felt I was collapsing. Pastor Emil, that's his oldest son, and my two other sons had to support me to help me to get home. My dear wife was at that time also struggling, even could not get out of bed. We both fell ill after the baptism on Saturday night. I outlined more particularly to Pastor Emil, my oldest, what are the things that need to be done for the ministry and the family. Dying indeed is a sobering thought, but exciting and spiritually comforting. He spent. That's why Gene and I went this last May and uh, in June to try to get there to see him. I, I, I realized as I hugged him goodbye on that morning we flew out that I may not see him till glory. And he's a man just a little older than me who has spent his entire life. He has spent. And when you're around him, you see it. He's frail and thin, and you can see where cancer has taken its role on him, and, and yet he has never stopped. And that's the idea here. This is what the Lord is trying to teach us here. Don't, don't do things vainly. If I, if I spend my whole life building barns bigger for myself and I die, whose do those go to? Jesus warned of that. Are you worn out for Christ? Will you die tired for him? Or will you die tired building your own kingdom? See, we're, we're not here for our own kingdoms. We're here for the kingdom of Christ. And we need to be spent for him and the gospel. We need to be willing to take whatever he gives us. Sometimes those are not encouraging words when you're at the doctor. But you take it as from the Lord and you say, Lord, if this is the way you want me to go out, I will go out glorifying you. I will give. I will serve till I have no more strength. Am I off here? Is this somewhere, is this, is this somewhere where I, I'm out of bounds biblically when I talk about these things? See, this is what the Bible teaches us. This is what he's saying. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Running out of energy. Running out of strength. Running out so that you trust the Lord in all things. Notice that last phrase back in our text is in the Lord. It's a little prepositional phrase. It denotes position. This is how we do things. We do them in the Lord. Not in our own strength. Not even in the church in a sense. You know, well, I'm a riverbender so I do this. No, no. You do this because of Christ. You're in Christ. It's an eternal position that can never be taken away. And our, and our, and our work is not only done only by the Lord, but in the Lord. And that's such an important phrase. It's done in Him. He's the one who strengthens us. The position in union with Christ grants you power. It grants you power to accomplish things. And it grants you wisdom. Did you pray for wisdom this week? God, give me wisdom so I can honor you with my decision making. I want to do this well. 138 times the Pauline, in the Pauline epistles, he says either in some phrase, in him, in Christ, in some way refers to our position in Christ. 138 times. All of that 
is accomplished in the strength of Christ for his glory. Colossians 1, 10 through 12 says this, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit to every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened by all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience and gloriously giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Man, that's eternity, that's security, that's assurance, that's purpose, that's direction, that's reminding us that we can accomplish the thing God asks us to do. Well, last week we looked at the example of the church in Thessalonica. This morning, I want to turn our attention to leadership. What's leadership role? Where has this leadership done well and where have we failed? We always have to look at leadership. A lot of things comes back, so this morning I want to look at leadership. Then secondly, I want to look at the church that does not labor in vain, but puts its trust in the Lord. I want to take a few minutes and look at that. And then finally, I want to make sure that we're building on the rock of Christ, not on the sands of man. And so let's look at those three thoughts together this morning. Number one, God's design for fruitful leadership that abounds in the work of the Lord. That abounds in the work of the Lord. Well, I must confess, as I've thought through this and especially these last few years and some of the difficulties we've had in front of us and some of the challenges that we deterred from what I think were my original goals. My original goals as I came to develop eldership here was a real balance of, of vocational men, men that had the opportunity to study, um, uh, knew the scriptures, could come and, and have, the un, uh, have the ability to exeget the scriptures great, but then a balance of laymen, lay elders, lay men who come, who, who are just as qualified and just above reproach, and, and we'll see this in just in a second, who join with us together to shepherd the church. Well, somewhere along that line, we did not accomplish that. We did not have the lay elders we need. And when you're out of balance in that, I think we found some of the areas that, that have been exposed. And I look forward to that. And I really want to teach this in a way to encourage uh, not only our vocational guys, and this is a challenge to us as well, but to men in this church to really pray about God's calling of caring for this church. And particularly the roles of elder and deacon. When you study these passages, and I'm going to go through them very quickly here, but when you study them, there's three things that jump out in these. There's character, there's theology, and there's shepherding. Character, theology, and shepherding. And believe me, men, you do not have to go to seminary to be able to do all three of those. Seminary helps for some of us, some of us that maybe this is the calling, this is what our main job is to do, helps us. Godly men pour into us, helps us with our languages and so forth. But, it, but, but the Bible isn't looking at that. When written in the first century, these are men. These are some coming out of slavery, some coming out of di diverse backgrounds. God is calling men to lead the church. I'm going to start in that great passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm praying and been praying, the elders are praying that God will raise up laymen. And there's things, some things happen, I'll share that with you just in a moment, that we're very encouraged by. But I want you to look at this passage. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy says this, it is a trustworthy statement. A little phrase like that ought to get your attention, right? 
This is something memorable, right? This is something that you should listen to. This is something that is important. This is a trustworthy statement. A faithful statement is the idea. If any man, notice the masculine role, this is given to men. God gives other roles to women. Remember, we believe that men and women are equal yet different, yet bring glory to God in different ways. Remember that? Um, you'll hear me teach that till my grave. Men and women are equal, yet God gives different roles to bring glory to him. Roles that a man cannot do, that a woman does, and vice versa. And so here, the, the very clear understanding of a, a male calling to the role of elder, overseer, um, pastor here is a man. And notice this man aspires to the office of overseer. It means there's a desire there. There's a desire to to take on this office, to take on this position that oversees the affairs of the church. And if the verse left off there, I think there would be some dangers because a lot of people love positions, right? Um, I want to run for whatever, a, you know, county seat or something like that. And we find problems when people want to serve because they want the position. But here's how Paul handles this. He said, it's a fine work he desires to do. So the emphasis is on the work here. It's a character of the worker. And you'll notice that that work would entail a lot of things as you read down through this. One, it entails the, the work of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He has to be above reproach in all these areas. It's the standard of it. And so it's this relationship with Christ that, that secures his character. So there's a personal relationship with Christ that, that, that is part of this work. Every one of us elders, and we'll see in Acts 20 just in a minute, he warns the elders in Acts, in Acts 20, that, or elders of Ephesus that come down to meet him in Miletus, that they are to guard themselves first from pride and arrogance and anything else that would drift them away. And so it starts with that personal relationship with Christ. The work also is watching over souls of whom you, might, whom you will give an account. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The work is caring for somebody else's souls who bought them with their blood. That's kind of tall order, isn't it? But again, remember, this is not this is first century. You don't have seminaries and, and great places of learning and, and okay, you go through that first and then you can be an elder. These are men coming out of the workplaces. These are men have great character because of their love of Christ. He's changed their lives. Notice that it's not only this personal relationship with Christ but, and, and this watching over souls, but that man himself represents Christ in some way. He's an under-shepherd. He's underneath the chief shepherd. There's a reflection of Christ in him, a consistent one that is there. Another aspect is he is concerned with the extending of Christ's kingdom. Not his own kingdom, not even just this kingdom, but Christ's kingdom around the globe. That's what we're concerned with. That's why missions is important to us. That's why, why sending people over to teach and train, and, and whether they're young and old, is such an important aspect of us because true elders care about the extension of the kingdom of God. The list could go on and on, but 
we affirm these truths of what this work is. It is handling and rightly dividing the word of God. It's counseling from the word of God. It's, it's caring for souls. It's patience. It's kindness. All of those things that we see in this man who desires this fine work. And again, men, please, it does not have degrees and letters behind it. It are men who love Christ, who love his word, and love his people. And I'm praying God is calling men in this congregation, those even hearing this today, notice he gives us some character, understand the character of this men. Well, he's an overseer. That's an important word. That, that word helps us understand the management of the things of God. And in order to manage the things of God, he must be above reproach. So that's the umbrella, right? Above reproach, there's a consistency there. There's an overwhelming consistency in his life to do these things. It starts with his home, doesn't it? He's a one-woman man. That's directly from the Greek. He's a one-woman man. For a long time, churches said, well, if you're divorced, you can't be a, you can't be a elder. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people can't because of the consequences of some of those things. But you, if you study the first century church, there was all kinds of polygamy. There was all kinds of things in there. All before salvation. And so we know that God does not hold a man accountable for things that are before salvation. What has he done since then? Is he above reproach even in those relationships? But he is a one-woman man. He's not flirtatious. He loves his wife. He's dedicated to her. Notice he's temperate. He's got self-control. He's prudent. That's, a, that's, a, uh, that's wisdom right there. That's what we need. We need men that have wisdom. They're prudent. They're respectful. They're honored in in their places of business, in their families, in their church. They're hospitable. What they have is given to others. Here's a defining difference between the deacon and the, man, and the elder. He's able to teach. It means he's studied, he's spent time in the Word, and he's able to say, here's what the Bible means. doesn't have to have letters behind his name. He just knows God's Word. He knows how important that is. And he's able to say, here's what the Bible says. He's able to teach. He's not addicted to wine or pugnacious. So he's not a drunk and a fighter is the idea there. He's gentle. Notice in verse 3. That's an interesting term to give to men. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's gentle. He's not harsh. He's not beating people up. He's caring for the flock. He, he doesn't mistreat the sheep. He's there to solve things. He's there to help and prevent things. That's what he does. He gently leads them to truth. He's peaceable. He's free from the love of money. These things are ex clear explanation. He understands the value of what God has given him. Notice he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he ever take care of the church of God? A great explanation, right? So the things that they strive for in their home now now, because they've done that in the home, now God gives them a greater opportunity to do it without, outside the home. Probably the number one thing that has removed elders is their lack of ability to control or to take care of their own home. Six, he's not a new convert. This is important because this has to do probably with theology. He knows the Bible. He knows God. Now, it doesn't mean that he has to be so many years in the faith. It's just... He knows the truth. I've watched young men study hard why they work, why they're raising their families and become very mature men 
in not too many years so that he will not be conceited. You know what happens when theology is not met with a brokenness and the love, conceit comes. And they fall under the condemnation of the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. This is, you can see this is just character. This is a man who began trusted with somebody else's children, God's children. And he's recognized even with those who don't even know Jesus as their Savior, they see this man as trustworthy, so he will not fall into reproach of the snare of the devil. Look with me at Acts 20 real quick as we continue to look at the mixture of character and theology and shepherding. I spoke on these verses many times before, but it's such an important thing to come back to time and time again. Acts chapter 20. Paul has requested the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. He's on his way to Rome um, to go to trial. He calls them down. He begins to just pour his soul out to him. Um, he has told them in 19, he's served them with all humility, even through plots of the Jews and others. He's, he's only taken what was profitable for them. He's, he's testified of, of both the Jews and the Greeks of, of repentance towards God and faith in verse 21. He's bound by the Spirit of God. The Spirit's directing him. He doesn't consider his own life as an account dear to himself. He's laid down his life. He's a great example of an elder, pastor, overseer. He toils and labors for the preaching of the kingdom. Remember, he's trying to advance the kingdom of God, not his own. Verse 25, he's innocent of the blood of all men. That's his position in Christ because he knows without the position in Christ, he is guilty of the blood of men. But he's innocent of it because of what Jesus has done. And because of that, he has not shrunk back from declaring the whole purposes. Notice that in verse 7. So now this character and theology start to mix here. You're not afraid of passages. You take them on. You want to know what God is about. And so you study him and you know that this whole theology proper works together. You start to begin to understand God. And, that's, and that can be done in just in your own Bible study. Be on guard. This is character, isn't it, for yourself. Verse 28. This is the character of a man. He first watches his own heart before he watches the heart of the flock. And notice that the Holy Spirit makes you overseers. I'm not here to say, oh, you, you, and you should be elders. I'm here to, let, to, to push you and make you think it's the Spirit of God calling you. See, these elders were elders not because of Paul, but because of the Spirit of God. The divine work of a God who calls men, he puts it on their, upon their hearts to be elders, overseers, pastors of the church. To shepherd, notice you see all of these words in here, overseer, shepherd. He starts with the elders of, of Ephesus. So all three terms talk about this man who shepherds the church of God into verse 28, who purchases it with his own blood. Notice the connection between God and the Son and the own blood. It's fascinating, isn't it? I know that after my departure, see, he's wise here. He knows that even when you do everything right, there are men who rise up among the flock and they seek to devour it. And they do it in a lot of different ways. Paul says, watch out for them. There's always those who look one way on the outside. They're dressed, they're, they're dressed like sheep, but they are savage wolves. And their goal is not to spare the flock. 
among yourselves men will arise. See, we told, I said this not many sermons ago. The worst things we take on often in the church are not the political problems out there. They come from in here. They come from inside Christianity. Speaking perverse things and drawing disciples away after them. Be alert. Elders are alert men. This is part of their character. I, 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 so many men in this church that I have the utmost respect for. I watch them manage their businesses. I watch them manage their families and protect them and care for them. I watch their alertness to things. It, it's, it's refreshing and warm to watch these guys. Young men, find a man who has done a good job with his family, with his business, with his ministry, and pull next to him. Let them show you their character in Christ. Paul was there, alert, day and night. Elders don't take time off. They're always on ready to go day and night. He said that over a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. And Paul, we know Paul was in Ephesus for quite some time, establishing this church, uh, raising up elders, doing this. And in the end, you notice he says in verse 32, I'm commending you to God and the word of grace. That's your job. I didn't, I didn't want your gold and your silver and your clothes in verse 33. I met my own needs. And we know that Paul's not saying that all elders shouldn't be taking money in there because other places he really gets on the church about caring for those who preach and care for the flock. But here he wants them to know that was not my goal. Notice that character. One more passage. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Now Peter gets in on the training and the instruction to the elders and pastors and overseers of the church. First, we find this great exhortation. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders, plural, among you as fellow elders. Uh, no way, in any way, does Peter elevate himself as the first pope or anything else. He sees himself as a fellow elder serving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as they serve Christ. And then he says, witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is just to know that those who come along later said, yeah, Peter was there. We know he was in the garden. We know he was in, uh, inside the gate, there at the fire, seeing Christ suffer. We know he was there. We know he was at the cross from a distance. And we know he repented of that. He says, that's who I am. But I also saw the glory that was to be revealed. I saw the Lord in the Mount of Transfiguration. I, I, I've seen clearly who he is. He is God. And then with all that strength, notice he talks to us men. Notice what he tells us to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Notice this is the second time that he says among you. This is the mark of an elder, a pastor, an overseer. They're among the flock. They care about them. They work hard to know who they are and what they do. They, they try to work hard at just knowing names and care for them and see how they're doing. There's phone calls that are made. They're, they're always concerned with the flock. And the only way you can do that is you have to be among them. You have to know them. You have to get in their, their lives. And, and the larger the church gets, the more difficult that is. The reason we need more elders. So that we're among the flock. Notice exercising oversight. So elders in verse 1, shepherd, that's pastor. Primero is the word pastor in verse 2. And then the third term, oversight, this is the management. So shepherd, a pastor, caring for souls, and an elder, wisdom and theology, oversight, management. 
management of things of God. All those terms are speaking of this man here. And notice he doesn't do it under compulsion. And the person said, why don't you just come ask some people? Well, I have asked a few people to pray about it. But I'm never going to compel you and push you and bend your arm behind your back. Why? Because notice what the verse says. But voluntarily, according to the will of God. That's why we want you to come, because God's pushing you. God wants you to serve in this way. We need this. From the beginning, I said, lay elders are such a key to the church because they bring an area of wisdom that often vocational elders, because of their study, because of their years of preparing so that they can shepherd the church in their unique ways, often don't have. And when God raises up a combination of men who have some have studied and spent their life to do this, but he's also raised up men who are godly, good representations of Christ in their character. When he raises those up and he puts them together, there's great success there. And we need that. And we're praying for that as elders. Us elders are praying that God would raise up those men. And we get back to what God had called us to do. Notice this is not for sordid gain. You want to get in the ministry? You're not going to get rich unless you're selling the prosperity gospel. And we ain't doing that. We're preaching Christ. And that means somebody's always going to be mad at us. You want to go in the ministry? Somebody's always going to be mad at you. Some new rumor, something's going to, you're going to get trashed. Let me just tell you that. But is he worth it? Do you stay in it? And so it's not done for some sordid gain, but with eagerness. Through the years, I've had the pleasure to work with many elders, both vocational and lay, and I've watched these men lean into trials. As the most difficult things that humans, even quote Christians, could throw at them. They're eager to serve the Lord. They don't lord it over in verse 3. As if it was allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. There's that word flock that connects you back to that pastor-shepherd word. And then you go, well, man, that doesn't sound very inviting. Well, it's not easy. But look what he does in verse 4. When the chief shepherd, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, when he appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. It is a difficult calling but it is not without reward. And God calls men into it. He calls them young and old. Is he calling you? Well, how did they do this in the early church? Look at Acts chapter 6 real quickly. A lot of people point to this verse as the creation of the deacons. I don't think it was. It was looking for men who would balance out the leadership of the early church. Deacons did come from this, but we have a stronger passage in 1 Timothy 3 on what the deacon is. This is the balance of being able to care for church, the church, and it comes to a need. Verse 1, now at this time when the disciples were increasing in number, I mean the church was exploding, right? We remember by the thousands people were getting saved. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So this would be, here's the difference, it was Greek-speaking Jews versus Hebrew-speaking Jews. And you could see the legalism that probably got in there. And they would say, oh, hey, we are the real daughters of Abraham. You guys are just added to us, so yeah, take the back seat. There's problems, right? Pe get people on the same 
room, they're all going to have problems sometimes, and this is what's happening here. Because the widows were being overlooked, that's the Hellenistic Jews, in the daily serving of food. Um, Paul does a great job in 1 Timothy 5 to say what is a widow and what is not a widow. That needs to be cared for. Verse 2, so the twelve, that's uh, disciples, they added Matthias to them, summoned the congregation of disciples, summoned all the church together and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, right? There's a problem here. We can't do everything. We need help. And, and, I, and I love this. This is... These are the men, the writers of the scriptures who are saying this. This is the 12. Hey, we need help. We cannot do everything. Such an important passage, isn't it? Therefore, brethren, select among you seven men of good repute. They probably picked seven because it's a great biblical number. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. You have to be saved to have the spirit of God. And then you have to move things out of your life in, in order to let the Spirit lead you. Instead of leading your own self, you don't quench the Spirit. You don't suppress the Spirit. You allow the Spirit of God to lead you. And that's evident in men's lives. It's evident in men's life in this room right now. I've watched you for many years. You've allowed the Spirit of God to lead you. And because of that, you have wisdom when there's difficulties. You, you make good decisions. You come and you bring aid and help because God's given you wisdom because you let the Spirit lead you. And that's what they were looking for, whom we may put in charge of this task. There was a task there. Was, there was a difficult situation going. There's a split happening in the flock. There's, there's problems there, and they needed help. And what that does, notice he says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word that allows men to do what they do, and that's why you have a division of labor within elders. There's guys that, that handle pulpits and, and, and others that counsel and so forth, and all that happens, but there's also oversight over so many things, facilities and maintenance and finances, and it just goes on and on. And sometimes you fail in some of those areas, and it hurts, and you've seen that. This is the way they solve this. And so the statement found approval. The whole congregation said, that sounds good. So they chose, well, look at the first guy they chose. Pretty good, huh? Stephen. And you go, oh, this is just a deacon. Oh, my goodness, just read on. Stephen's an amazing man. Absolute, incredible man who handles God's word right. And then these other men that are with him, many of we don't, totally know who they are, but these, these credible men that come and accomplish the goal of shepherding the church. There's one other office just real quickly I want to peek at. is First Timothy chapter 3. It's a deacon. It's a deacon. He's, he's unique. He has many of the same qualifications as the elder. In fact, they mirror in so many ways. And so verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 says, Likewise, it must be a man of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine and fond of sordid gain. You can see all this right back in there, right? This is, this is a man who has both a calling, he has conviction, and he understands the cost. I think those are the three things, the C's that I often use. Calling conviction, and cost. You know that. 
And he says this, you look, notice he's holding the mercies of, the, the, excuse me, the ministry, uh, the, the ministry of faith, meaning he understands the gospel, he understands Christ coming to this earth, he understands the Messiah, he understands the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ with a clear conviction. Notice it doesn't say he's able to teach that from the pulpit. He may not be that guy, but he knows what Jesus did for him. And he's able to let you know, I hold to these things. He does it with a clear conscience. He doesn't waver. These men must be first tested. And then let them serve as deacons. The word deacon is the idea of ministry, a minister of mercy. Someone who loves to see people in need and provide mercy to them. Church needs that. Church needs men who can see that. Notice that they are above reproach. Women like must likewise be dignified, not malice gossips or temperate or faithful in all things. If you have the ESV translation, I think it's actually a better translation. It says they're wives. doesn't mean that a church can't have deaconess. I know some of them have that. But I think it's talking about the wives of them. And that's true in the elders. They must have wives and children and so forth. The deacon must be a husband of one wife, good managers of their children and their household. Those whom he have served well as a deacon obtain for themselves a high standing, a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Look, at, that's what it comes to. Maybe, you're, maybe you just have, you know your Bible, you know doctrine, you know what Jesus has done, and you just love to serve and care for souls. There's a role for you. You can do that in many ways in this church, but it might be in the diaconate. Notice he says, hey, look, I might get delayed here, verse 14 and 15, but I want you to know these things. And look at this phrase. So that everyone knows how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. That's how we conduct ourselves. This is where we run. This is what we do. This is the New Testament church growing. And it has two forms of offices that care for them. I want to, boy, I failed again. Um, that clock is just ridiculous. Let me just share what, in closing, what God has done here recently. By the grace of God, as elders identified some men in our church that we sought their counsel from. You know we're struggling financially a little bit. We've had some tough things happen to our church, some of our fault, some not. And so God allowed us to get these men into rooms over the last couple of weeks and just began to ask them questions it wasn't easy. <laughs> we had to hear some hard things. But each one of these men that came to help us are still here. Most of them are in this room today. Yes, they were frustrated with some things, but they don't leave. And they have been such an encouragement to us elders. They have stood with us and are helping us figure out things that maybe we're not the best at. And they're making us better at. These are men that were willing to give up their time, their own finances in many cases, to help solve some problems. And so we've formed a few teams to help us while we wait for God to raise up more men. And, and so we have a facilities team that helps us look at roofs and buildings and uh, finances, uh, excuse me, a, a management of our facilities, uh, helping us with that. Such uh, incredible meetings taking place. Then we gathered a group of men for a financial team that, Come underneath Pastor Brian and, and help him and encourage him and help him look through all of that, this, 
massive amount of money that funds um, these ministries from the school to the church to the overseas missions and all of that. There's, there's f- over $4 million a year that just comes through this ministry. And these men love this church and they love Christ and they're helping. And so I want to give you some encouragement. These things are happening. And it takes elders to recognize, hey, we need help. And the men are answering. As I close this, and once again, I'll maybe build this into an introduction for next week, the rest of this. Um, I ask you, men, is God calling you? And maybe you say, I don't, I'm not there yet. I've got some things to do. Yeah, that's good. You should recognize those things. But some of you are qualified. You're called and qualified men. Is God calling you to serve with us? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in the word, Lord. It's never enough time. Time just gets by, Lord. Your word is so deep and so captivating. I know for many of us, we could sit here for hours and just hear your word. And yet, Lord, it's not coming without conviction. Conviction to elders who need to continue to excel more. To find areas of weakness and failures and and own them and move forward. Excelling in men in this room who I know have wrestled with the calling of eldership, Lord. For them to respond to God. To respond to His calling, the work of the Spirit. Not for some sordid gain, not for some pat on the back, but because they love their Lord and Savior and are willing to serve Him. And so, Lord, I pray you would raise up. I thank you for the wives of may even speak with her husbands today. They've seen their husbands. They see the character. They see the theology. They see the care for souls. May those wives encourage their husbands to pursue this. And, Lord, I think of the young men that are in this room, men that have come to faith and are growing and and are really truly seeking out the will of God, I pray you would call and raise many of them up in time coming to be pastors, elders, missionaries, overseers of your church. Lord, if we don't have leadership, we'll die. So we need that, Lord, and I pray you would continue to raise up men. We pray you'd raise up volunteers for this ministry, care for children, ladies, and counseling care for new people who come into this building who don't know where they're going or are nervous. Pray for those who would seek the lost and care about evangelism and outreach. Those who care about the hungry, care about the suffering, those who need phone calls and visits. Lord, there's so much to do how we can not run this life, this race in vain, but finish well in the presence and person of God, our Lord Jesus, Savior, Christ, Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up volunteers here who will serve you greatly, who abound in the work of the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.